guys, if you were here a couple weeks ago, it was a very pathetic teaching. I was under the weather significantly so, and uh, Kent was gracious enough to move his teaching up to last week. I would have taught then, wasn't 100%, still am not. Um, but anyway, I appreciated him accommodating. So you're going to get me for four weeks in a row instead of the normal three. Uh, before I get to the image in front of you, some of which you know uh, what that is, a few weeks ago I mentioned that one of our daughters, when she was very little, around five years old, uh, was scandalized when older sister told her against our clear command uh, how we get babies. Uh, little five-year-old little sister uh, was determined to grow up and be a wife and a mother, and she wanted to have kids. She was all about that. But she was scandalized. She was set back on her heels when big sister told her how you got babies, how those came to be. It didn't fit her model. She didn't know what she thought about it, but that certainly was not it. It grossed her out. She didn't want any kids for a while. You know, it would require a maturer view of life and God and God's glory and procreation before, before that initial thought that scandalized her could be reconciled in her little mind with the way God had put things together. And once in a while, you and I will run up against things in Scripture uh, things God does, things God allows that you may feel scandalized from. That you read something and it offends you or you can't make sense of it. You don't know what to do with it. And, and frankly, um, that may be true for many of us this morning on the message that we're looking at in the Job series. Now, I'm using what's kind of a humorous kid's movie and storyline as an opening introduction, but it's not because uh, the message is humorous at all. And I will just tell you on the front end, this isn't hype. I've never done a message that has caused me more dread than the one I'm doing this morning, I say in all seriousness. I've never done a message that caused me greater fear of God than the message this morning. I've never done a message that made me want to avoid sin more fully than the message I'm doing this morning. And I don't say, that. if that doesn't work for you, that's fine. But I'll just tell you that the issue we're dealing with this morning is so significant, um, it didn't scandalize me, but it made me reassess all my life, all my character, all my choices. So as an introduction, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, I know, not a serious example, but, but the point will still come across, I think. <clears throat> In Roald Dahl's story, Willy Wonka is the chocolate maven of, the, of the, the kingdoms of the world, right? He makes the best chocolate, period. But he's been a recluse. Nobody knows anything about him. But lo and behold, one day he issues seven golden tickets. They're going to be sold in chocolate bars around the world. And the lucky winners are going to be able to meet Willy Wonka in person and go through the chocolate factory. Every time, in whatever point of the world, somebody comes up with one of those golden tickets, this nefarious-looking guy comes out of the corners, and he comes up and he whispers in their ear. And we sort of wonder what's going along until Charlie Bucket gets that last ticket. And we find out that that gentleman approaching everyone who's won a golden ticket is Mr. Slugworth. And basically, he tells Charlie this, uh, I am the arch ne nemesis of Willy Wonka. I want his secrets. And if you'll help me, I'll give you all the money you need to take care of your mom who washes clothes so she can take care of your grandparents who are stuck in bed. So, uh, Charlie, you help me and I'll help you. So Charlie with the other kids go through. If you've seen the movie, it's hilarious. You know, one by one, the children fall. They they're, they fall into chocolate rivers, they're sucked up tubes, they, they go to the berry pressing place, you name it, one thing and another. At the end of it all, Charlie Bucket is the last guy left, and he's in Willy Wonka's office. And he says, you know, do I get the chocolate? You know, that was the deal at the end of the thing. Do I get the chocolate? And Wonka says, no, man, you lost. You lost everything. You broke the rules. You get nothing. Now, Charlie's grandfather is livid. And he says, we'll get even with him. We're going to take that everlasting gobstopper. That's the secret that Slugworth wants. We're going to take it. We're going to sell it to Slugworth. We're going to get even with Wonka. But Charlie thinks about it, thinks it over, and he doesn't want to do that. So he puts the everlasting gobstopper on Wonka's desk and he turns to walk away. And Wonka says, Charlie, you've won. He's like, what? I've won the chocolate? Well, he says, yeah, the chocolate, but you get the kingdom. 
I'm giving everything I have to you. You won. And when he tells them this, the door to the office opens and in walks Slugworth. And Charlie is scandalized. He says, Mr. Wonka, this is your enemy. This is Slugworth. And Wonka says, well, actually, he works for me. The guy that was tempting you to betray me, he works for me. He's my employee. And you pass the test. And guys, that's a little bit about what we see this morning. What we find out is that Satan is God's employee. And I'll try and be careful the way we talk through this this morning. Because there's some nuances. We won't be able to, to make every nuance and every correction and every imbalance everything I'm saying, okay? There's just way too much ground to cover. But what you find out is Satan is God's employee, and he's doing God's bidding and God's business. And that's not to say God is the author of death and sin at all. But you'll see what we're talking about here in the message. I will warn you, uh, turn your clocks off because I'm going to go long. Apologies up front. That's just the way it is. I, I couldn't wind this down too much. So we're in the Job series. This is the fourth message, and we're talking about Job's adversary this morning. We are not in any way trying to do a comprehensive study on Satan. What we're doing is we're looking at Satan, the adversary's role in Job. That's, that's what we're doing. And then we're, we're going to enlarge that a little bit through the rest of the Scripture. But that's the, the setting that we're in. It's Job. It's not the, the topic of Satan largely. So if you've got a pew Bible, this is on page 417. I'm going to read the text. You've heard this before, but we're going to set the stage again. So Job 1, starting at verse 6. I'm reading from the ESV. Uh, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Doesn't show up very good there, does it? The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro, sorry, I better read off my text, uh, walking up and down on the earth. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand, touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face, says the adversary. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, we're not reading the text that happens in between, but in verses 13 through 22, of chapter 1, we know that Satan comes through with God's authority, and he uses people, and he uses nature, and he uses disease to take from Job everything that he has and valued. And Job does not sin against the Lord there at the end of chapter 1. Gets into chapter 2, repeat the scene. Again, there's a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand, touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. So you got this heavenly scene. Job knows nothing about, right? There's never any indication that Job ever knows that everything going on in his life sprang from this heavenly court scene. You know, and, and in, in fact, you've got this angelic host in God's presence with this discussion that not only Job, but his friends don't know anything about, right? So all the conversations that follow, you know, the back and forth between Job and his friends, it's an argument 
that in a sense has no merit because it doesn't even take into account the reality of what's going on and why. They know nothing about it. There's a passage in 1 Kings 22 related to King Ahab and the prophet Micaiah that is this same setting. The courts in heaven, the angelic beings are there, the sons of God identified here as the angelic beings, Satan among them. Uh, having that heavenly courtroom scene, that comes up again in 1 Kings 22. It's another very similar occasion and scene. So when God points Job out to Satan, Satan makes ac accusation and he makes them with a purpose. And we say, what, what is Satan after in this? And you see that in chapter 2, verse 3. God says, you incited me against Job to destroy him without reason. So if you say, what's Satan up to? in Job's life. What, what is the outcome, the unholy ends to which he wants to be at work in Job's life? God says it's to destroy Job without reason. Satan hopes to destroy Job. Do you remember in Job, it's, uh, we say Satan singularly, but it's the Satan, the accuser, the adversary. So the accuser accuses Job of having a fickle, shallow loyalty to God. That's the first accusation. He only loves you, honors you because of the good stuff you give him. Then the accuser also lies because he says to God, Job will curse you. And Job never does. And Job won't. So you've got the Satan, the adversary, he accuses and he lies. And when you get to John chapter 8, when Jesus is having a discussion with the religious leaders of his day, he talks about Satan, the adversary, and he talks about what he's like. And guys, it's the exact same dynamics that you see at work here in Job. So in John 8, 44, Jesus says to the religious leaders, you're of your father, the devil. The devil means adversary. Your will is to do your father's desire. Your father's desire is he was a murderer from the beginning. Now in Job, God says you want to destroy Job. You want to destroy his life. Jesus' language here in John 8 is he's a murderer. He destroys life. He's a life taker. He doesn't stand in the truth. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. So here's Satan. He's the accuser. He's a murderer and he's a liar. The goal of Satan is to destroy Job's life through accusation and lies. That's what he's after. And God gives this accusing, lying, murderer permission to oversee Job's life and to take from Job everything he cares for. Now just think about that for a second. Whoever you think your worst enemy is, the person who has the most hatred against you ever in your life, and God gives you under their care. Now, none of those people could compare with Satan in malice or in accusing or in lying or manipulation. You know, any human's a lightweight compared to this guy, Job's adversary. But what you see is God is turning Job over to Job's worst enemy, someone who wants to destroy his life. And that, friends, is a scandalous thought. So the God who, the God of love and trust his faithful servant Job, he's been bragging on him. He loves Job. He values Job. And he gives him over to the epitome of hate, the father of lies and the original murderer. God's putting the life of his beloved servant into the hands of Job's worst enemy. And think of this for just a second. Satan is the one who tempted our first parents to sin and die. And if you remember the temptation account in Genesis 3, he accuses God and he lies to Adam and Eve to destroy their lives, which is what happens. They die. Same thing. The same adversary using the same mechanisms to the same end. The murderous spiritual energy behind Cain in Genesis 4, when Cain rises up and strikes down his brother Abel, 1 John 3.12 tells us, comes from Satan. That the spirit of murder is from Satan, the one whose object and end is always to destroy life. And it's into that one's hand that God entrusts the life of his servant, his noble servant, his blameless servant, Job.
So the question becomes, what in the world is going on? Why would God do that? To what end could God be at work to give Job into the hands of his adversary? Not just any adversary, the worst adversary possible. What's going on? What is God up to? Now, we saw, if, if you were here a month or so ago, we did the introduction to Job. We saw when this all shakes out and the dust settles, we saw four things. Job's sin is exposed. Now, Job never curses God. It doesn't happen. But he does justify himself at God's expense. So Job's sin is exposed. Job repents before God. He repents of his sin. He's restored in that relationship with God. That's Job 41 and 42. And then he's more blessed by God after all this than he was before. That's where all this goes. Sin is exposed, Job repents, God restores, and then he blesses more fully than before. So we know that Satan wanted to destroy Job and God wanted to heal Job. Heal Job of a sin Job didn't know he had. Satan's unholy desire for Job was death. And God's holy will for Job was more life. It wasn't death, though it looked like it, right, in the midst of everything that's going on. But God's goal for Job through everything that happened was not death, it was not loss, it was life. And that's what you see at the end of Job's life. Christopher Ashe in his commentary says it this way, Satan will oppose Job and yet will do so in a way that strangely and paradoxically will eventually be seen to serve the purposes of the Lord. He quotes Martin Luther here. As Luther put it, the Satan is God's Satan. We talked about the sovereignty of God a couple weeks ago, and we said Satan can't do anything that God doesn't cause or allow. It's an impossibility. Just as Slugworth was Wonka's employee, Satan if you can put it this way, is in God's employment, in the life and the suffering of Job. Satan intends death, but God means sanctification and more life for Job through the work of the adversary. Sometimes, and this is where there's a lot of nuance that's needed, and we won't be able to get into all of that this morning, but sometimes Satan is God's tool to test, to prove to sift the life of his servants and then ultimately to give us more of his glorious life. In other words, God deconstructs to build back up better than before. So God's holy will for his children is sanctification and life, and God will go to extreme ends to free us from sin and bring us into more of the blessing of his life. God isn't satisfied with a little holiness and a little life for his children. Friends, this is where it gets very, very serious for me. And this is, this is why this has been grappling with my soul. To what ends will God get rid of sin in your life? He will go to extreme ends. And, and why is God getting rid of sin in our life? To give you more of the life of Christ. And, and what should that tell us? We need to hate sin the way God hates sin. And the truth is we don't. Do you not find that you have sins in your life that you justify one way or another? Not that I've ever done that, but I've heard others do. That you, right? So for me, unkind words to my wife. You know, I've been totally convicted in the last two years. I don't have God's permission to share unkind words with my wife. It's out of line. It's sin. Do we have the same view of sin and death that God does? And I don't think we do. Because if we did, we would flee from sin. In other words, sin is so sinful and the death that it brings is so to be avoided that God says he will go to extremis to get you and me to flee sin. And in the fleeing from sin to be embraced in more of the life of Christ God saved us for. Guys, God is extreme in a ways I think we generally don't give him credit for. Job knew something about this because you remember the book starts out by saying, Job fears God. And because he fears God, what does he do? He turns from evil. He avoids sin because he fears God. 
And I think most of us are living a life so out of the fear of God and so embracing of our sins that this theme has simply rocked Mike's world. Sin and the death it brings is so important to God, so destructive to us, God will go to any length to set us free from them. And guys, this should cause us fear and pause. God has a holy determination to usher us into more of the abundant life Jesus came to give us, so much so that he will deconstruct us in order to build us back up again. And fearing God and turning from evil as Job did is the best thing you and I can do on the front end of it. We can avoid all kinds of temptation and sin, and therefore God's holy discipline, because he loves us, it's always about his love for us, by on the front end, fleeing from sin, taking our sin seriously, taking repentance seriously, saying, God, I don't want to embrace the sin. I want to think of it as you do. I want to flee from it. I want to escape it. I want more of the life Christ came to give me. So God will use anything and everything. He will use Job's adversary. He will use the worst imagination of anything Job ever had in Job's life to free Job from sin he was unaware of. That's extreme. Let me give you an example scripturally. This is one of the reasons I'm going to run just a little long this morning, but it's so point by point with Job that I want to bring it up so you can see it someplace else in scripture. The little minor prophet book of Habakkuk has essentially the same elements going on that you see in the book of Job. So Habakkuk has a conversation with God, and it's just, it's back and forth, Habakkuk and God. We're having a conversation. And God says to his man Habakkuk, uh, Habakkuk, I'm going to bring the evil, wicked Babylonians in. And they're not the power on the earth yet when God has this conversation. They're rising, they're in ascendancy, but they're not yet there yet, somewhere around 600 B.C. But God says to Habakkuk, I'm going to use them and I'm going to come and judge Judah with the Babylonians. And Habakkuk says, well, uh, Habakkuk is scandalized. He says, now hold on, Lord. He says, now I know that we need your discipline because we have caved to idolatry. There's absolutely no question that we need a work from you to help us out of our sin. He says, absolutely so. And what you see historically is after the Babylonian captivity, the Jews don't fall to idolatry again. That's not their sin. It's never an issue for them after that, after this discipline that occurs that Habakkuk is referring to. But he says, Lord, this is the problem. How can you take a people more wicked than us and use them to judge us. It's not right. It's unfair. That's his argument. And so the Lord says this, well, listen, no problem. I am going to use them to judge my people, Judah, whom I love. But after I've used them as my instrument of testing and judgment, I'm going to judge them too. They don't get off. I can use someone more wicked than you to bring about repentance from sin in your life, and then I'll judge them too. There's nothing unfair about it. Now, Habakkuk says this. In Habakkuk 3, verse 2, tell me if this sounds similar to Job. He says, Lord, I heard about you and your work. Lord, I, I knew something about you. I'd heard about you. I knew something about you. And he says this. He says, because of what I knew, Lord, I dreaded your work and I feared you. I haven't caved into idolatry. I know something about you. I know you hate sin. I've avoided sin because I live in the fear of you. But after he's had the conversation with God, he has the same sort of turning that Job does. Where Job says in 42, I'd heard about you. But Job says there in 42, but now I see you. Well, listen to what Habakkuk says. Because he now knows something about God he didn't know before. And he says this at the end of the book. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, because judgment's coming, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Does that sound like Job? That's absolutely like Job. Though, though all our wealth, all our provision is removed, says Habakkuk, just like Job, he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, whatever you allow in my life, I trust you. I know you. 
In fact, that's just like Job 13, 15. Though God should slay me, though God would kill me, I will never stop trusting him because I know him. Whatever adversity, whatever confusion enters into my life, I know God too well to do anything in the end except trust him. Just like Job, Habakkuk, exactly the same thing. Out of the persecution from the evil Babylonians, Habakkuk finds greater faith and knows more of the real life of God. That's the fruit. So think about this. In God's holy mission, God's holy purposes, to free Job from sin, he uses Satan. In God's holy mission to free Judah from idolatry, he uses evil, wicked Babylon. In God's holy mission to free you and me from sin and bring us into a greater knowledge of himself and therefore into greater life, God will use anyone and anything. Friends, many of you know this, God will use sickness, use things like cancer, he'll use failed health, he will use hardships and accidents, he will use financial downturns, he will use the betrayal of friends and the hatred of enemies. God will use the things you and I dread and fear to get us to repent of sin and draw more fully into his presence. What may feel like the greatest of betrayals or scandalous treatment in the moment may in fact turn out to be what Sheldon Van Auken calls a severe mercy. If you know his story, his wife died of cancer and, the, and their biography, their story together, he titled a severe mercy. God's never less than merciful to his children. But sometimes that mercy looks and feels very severe, very extreme indeed. Now, Eric Davis wrote this in a Cripplegate blog from just last month. In his view here, it's like God's the master and we're the dog, and he's got a lead on us. And it's about idolatry, the temptation to idolatry. And he says this, God loves us by refusing to grant us things that would stoke our lusts. God loves us so much that he will break our legs so that we can no longer wander off towards our self-worshiping idols. You know, with little lambs, sometimes they wander off, and if a lamb wandered off, it would almost always end up destroyed. And so shepherds back in the day would break their legs. And the lamb can't wander off anymore. It's severe, but it's merciful. He loves us so much that he will withhold good things that have become God things things that we've raised inordinately. God loves us so much that he will yank hard on our choke chains as we sprint towards deliciously deadly idols. Have you ever pulled your dog up short? You know, they're just ready to take off. Man, and you give them that, and they just flip backwards. Well, that's, he says, what God's willing to do to us when we're trying to head off to that thing he knows will, in fact, kill us. God's holy end, it's not just the removal of sin, right? This is getting rid of something so you get something else. And so the end to which God's at work in your life and mine, and this goes on as long as we're on this earth, in this body, this is what's going on. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 11. He says, we're afflicted in every way. This is the guy God loves. We're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're still here. We're perplexed. He says, man, we don't know what's going on. We can't figure this out. We're confused. We're not sure what God's up to specifically. He says, but we're not driven to despair. Still know who we belong to. Still know he's got the big picture. He says, we're persecuted, but not forsaken. Jesus said, I'm always with you to the end of the age. You couldn't get rid of Jesus if you tried. He says, we're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Now, that's interesting, right? Satan's goal for you and me is to destroy our lives. Paul says, we're not destroyed. We've been knocked down. He says, we're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. We who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. That sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? The God of life turning us over to death. Why? So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested 
in our mortal flesh. Remember when Jesus said in John 10.10, I've come that they might have life and might have it in abundance. You guys ever seen a parent bird feed the babies? Have you ever seen it? I'm serious. You ever seen it? It's, it's, it's kind of gross, actually. Now, I'm a bird lover, but the way they feed the little ones is gross. The little ones in the nest, just watch a video. Go to YouTube. You've got to see it for later. So the birds are all in the nest, and when the parent comes back, the birds, little ones, they're still blind. They can't even see. All they know is mom or dad is there on the edge of the nest. And they open their mouths. And all of them open their mouths as wide as they can, and they try and make their mouth a little higher than brother and sister birds next to them. And you know what the parent does? That wide open mouth, the parent bird is gross. They stuff their beak down that little bird's mouth, and they're stuffing food right into their gullet. And you know what? God loves you so much that he will stuff life down your throat so that you get it. Because this is the end. Why is, God, why is God going to extreme ends to get us away from sin? To get us life. To get more of him. To get more of what Jesus said he died to give us, life in abundance. God tests everyone, guys. If you read through the Bible, you'll see that God tests everyone. And guess what? He especially tests those that he loves. You don't get out of testing because God loves you, because you're his child. You get more, not less, because he loves you. Sometimes the testing God allows us is accomplished through Job's adversary, through the devil. That's not always the case, but it is sometimes. Abraham's tested in Genesis 22.1. The text says God tested Abram. How? He said, give up what you love most in the world, go sacrifice Isaac. It said he was tested. Israel was tested actually a multitude of ways. One of them was man in the wilderness. Would they collect it the way God said? God tested Israel. In fact, in Exodus, it calls Israel his son. God tested the one he loved. David is incited by Satan to number Israel in 1 Chronicles 21.1. God allowed Satan to entice David to essentially curse Israel. That's what he allowed. They were tested. David was tested. One of the most painful examples of this, but I think it's closer to where you and I live, is in the gospel accounts. It's in Luke 22. And if you remember there, it's the upper room. It's the night of the Last Supper. Jesus is with his fellas. They've celebrated, right? The, the Seder meal has been turned into the Last Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. And Jesus says this to Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you... Um, you here is plural, you all of you. Jesus says it to Peter, but it's about the group. Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. If you read the rest of the story, you know. Now, the deal with Peter is he's boasted. He's told Jesus, I love you better than anyone else here does. And no matter what happens, you can count on me. I'll be there for you, Jesus. But what happens... Now, you remember the arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane? They come back into the city, to the house in the courtyard of the high priest. And when he's there in the courtyard, Peter, three people come up to him and say, and essentially they accuse him, right? They say, you're one of his. You're one of his followers. And it's not a friendly statement. It's an accusation. Jesus said, Satan will sift you tonight. Who was in the mouth of those three servants in the high priest's court? It was Satan. Let me ask you a question. Is Satan ever in your mouth and mine? I'm serious, dead serious. Gossip, lies, slander, things we say to people, things we say about people. This was Satan in their mouths, accusing Peter. And what's Pete do? He folds, just as Jesus said he would. And the rooster crows. And this is one of the most poignant scenes in all the Bible for me, right? So Peter's boasted, I'll, I'll be there for you, Lord. Jesus says, you won't. A rooster's going to crow. And when you hear that rooster, remember, you've denied me three times. Now, somehow in the layout of that courtyard and the interior where Jesus is, when the rooster crows, the text says Jesus looks and sees Peter. Can you imagine that? And Pete sees Jesus and he heard the rooster and he knows, I just did what he said I would. I just did what he said I would, what I said I would never do. 
And the text says he goes out and he weeps bitterly. He repented. Peter was proud. He said, I'm better than the rest of the guys here. And you can count on me, Lord, in ways that God knew, no, you're not better. And I can't count on you. But you don't know that because of your pride. God allowed Peter and the boys to be sifted because of their sin, unrepented sin. He was not only at work in Judas delivering Jesus, he was at work in the mouths of the people accusing Peter. Peter was delivered in notable measure from his sin of pride by being sifted by Satan in the mouths of those other folks. Guys, the other thing you've got is 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. It's a little warm in here. You guys having trouble? Because I'm sweating. So we're staying awake. The thing with Paul, too, right? Closer to home, you say, Job, man, Job's way back there near Abraham, 4,000 years ago. Paul's quite a bit closer to us, isn't he? Peter was quite a bit closer. You remember what, Pete, uh, what Paul tells us about God's treatment of him? And you remember, Paul was unique. There's no one that's ever lived on the earth that was like Paul in the privilege God granted him and what he knew, what he saw, and what he heard. And he's clear on that, 2 Corinthians. But he says this in chapter 12. He says, To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations God had given to me, a thorn was given me. And what's the thorn? A messenger of Satan to harass me. Now, I don't care what you say this looked like. People say it's his eyes, it's something, it's this, it's that. I don't care. What I do know, the text says it's a messenger of Satan. God is using Paul's enemy to harass Paul, to keep him from pride. The text is quite clear. It's Satan's own harassing Paul to keep him from sin. He says, it's so that the power of Christ can rest on me. For the sake of Christ, I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. When I'm weak, I'm strong. Paul says, I get it. When I'm stuck out, strung out, overwhelmed, harassed, it's Christ's life and strength that becomes at work in me. So I'm good with this. It's not what I want. It's not what I'd ask for, but I'm good with this. It's what God's up to. Now, I wince when I think of what God did in Paul's life. I cringe. Because, guys, I ask myself this, and you need to ask yourself this. What would God allow in my life? What would God do to me? personally, directly, or through even the adversary, Job's adversary, your adversary, mine. What might God be willing to do in your life or mine to get us from sin and get us more into the life of Christ? Friends, this is a terrifying thought to me. What severity of discipline might God my Father do to me if I won't get rid of sin? It's an extreme thought. It's changed the way I've thought about my father. I have a whole new level of respect and dread and fear. And a serious outlook on sin because of this. Ask yourself, what do I dread? See, Job said, what I dread, that's what came on me. It's what God allowed. What do you dread? What's your worst fear? Is it possible God would go to that route in your life to remove sin from your life? It is exactly what he did in Job's life. It's exactly what he did in Paul's life. It's exactly what he did in Peter's life. God used Satan to expose hidden, unknown sin in Job. He used Satan to address unrepented sin in Peter. He uses Satan to keep us from sins he knows we would cave to. That would be in Paul. How am I doing? Huh. We've got all the time in the world. I'm early. What you'll see, too, uh, this isn't the Jesus answer for Sunday school, but Jesus was tested and tempted just like you and I are. In fact, more severely than you and I will ever know, and more severely than Job was, too. You know, when you look at the temptation account, Matthew 4, it, it says the Spirit compels Jesus in the wilderness. Now, he's not tempted initially. He fasts for 40 days. Think of this, no food. He's emotionally and physically at his weakest point possible, and it's then when the tempter comes in. 
And he offers him things that Jesus knew were legitimately his, just not at that time in that way. Tempted exactly along the lines that the humanity of Jesus would have craved. Food, glory, the kingdom. Absolutely tested in the very worst ways possible. It didn't end there, though. In fact, I can't remember if it's Luke's gospel, I think. It says, Satan waited till another opportune time to test him. And what you've got, Hebrews 4.15 says, Jesus has been tempted or tested in every way you are, I am, except he never caved to sin. That was the difference. He was tempted throughout his lifetime in ways that Satan knew would be appropriate to him specifically. He is tested in his torture and humiliation. Think of all the, the taunts, the head wagging, the accusations, both in his torture and then his crucifixion. When Job was tested by Satan, you see that he's willing to justify himself at God's expense. When Peter was tested by Satan, his pride was revealed. When Jesus was tested by Satan, what, what was seen? What was revealed? What was down inside Jesus? Perfection. So when, when he dies on the cross, the centurion, he, different records of the different things he must have said at the time, the centurion says, this man was innocent. That's Luke. Mark says, this man was the Son of God. He didn't deserve this. He was an innocent man. Absolutely no question. And, and that summary, that account, that, that's God's version. He was the guy. He was the man. Did nothing wrong and yet was sifted, was tried, was tempted, and comes out shining like gold. You know, in Jesus' case, why does God the Son come down, take on our humanity? Now, we know he, he saves us. He loves us. We get that. But part of it, from the perspective of the Trinity, God the Father is looking for ways to heap honor and glory on God the Son. More life, if you will. That through Jesus' suffering, God the Father is able to heap glory and honor him through eternity in a way that wouldn't have been true if he hadn't come and shared our humanity. It was never towards death itself. It was always towards an end of glory and life within the Trinity. So, uh, where does all this end? Where is this heading? You know, all the power, all the temptations, all the testings that the adversary can accomplish in Job's life or in your life or my life is all delegated authority. A Satan could not act unless God allows him to. And all the authority, all the power, all the conniving Satan's up to is through authority he has been delegated by God. And what you'll see is, we haven't touched on this because there's just not much time, but Satan affects people groups. When you see the Sabians and the Chaldeans attacking, Satan has brought to bear his power on a whole host of people. Do you think he might do that today? Do you think people groups and nations might be affected by Satan today? By the way, this is one of the key themes of the book of Daniel as well. It's still going on today. Satan uses the power of nature. The winds, fire from heaven might be lightning, might be something different. Satan was given the authority to use the, the forces of nature. Might still be happening today, different times in different places. And he was able to use disease itself. Do you think Satan might ever attack anybody with disease today because God allows it. Yeah. But all delegated authority. Nothing Satan can do is outside God's sovereign plans, purpose, and will. So what Satan cannot do, and this is the big mistake we, we don't want to make, Satan is not God's equal. It's not even that it's close. There's no thought of that in the Scriptures. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He's created. He can only exercise within God's permission. He's not God. And he has an end. Now, I will say, uh, Satan's greatest work has not happened on the earth yet, guys. It's still ahead. So you read 2 Thessalonians chapters 1 and 2. You read Matthew 24. You read the book of Revelation. Signs and lying wonders. A guy whose Satan's pawn is going to stand in the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem. He's going to look like he was dead and he rose to life. 
Satan killing people across the earth if they profess allegiance to the Lamb. All of this is in the future. Satan's worst work on the world has not occurred yet. It's yet future. And in fact, it says in 2 Thessalonians 2 that God gives them over to believe Satan's lies because they refused the love of the truth. Satan's greatest days are yet ahead. Having said that, when Jesus returns to the earth, God says, it's like he whistles. He says to one angel, go bind that guy up and throw him in the prison. One angel lays hold of Satan, binds him in chains, and imprisons him for a thousand years while Jesus rules on the earth. After that thousand years are up, God says, the text is quite clear, releases Satan, Satan comes back, tempts the world again, and guess what we do? They do. They fall for it. They march against Jesus in Jerusalem, and God wipes them out. And what happens then? Revelation 20, verse 10, Satan is consigned to the lake of fire, the second death. God says, I'm done with you, and now here you go. You've been in my employment, I've used you, and I'm done with you. Your purpose and your role is over, and you're now consigned to the lake of fire, the second death. That's the way it ends. The applications on this are several. Let me, let me tell you, before you even see number one, either here or on your study sheet, um, guys, if you don't know Christ is your Savior, Satan is your God. He's your God. He rules your life. Absolutely. Scripture's clear on this. You're dead in trespass and sin unless you've trusted Christ to save you. You're dead spiritually. You're in Satan's kingdom. You have no spiritual life. And your end is with Satan in the lake of fire. And you know that's not God's will for your life? Because Jesus died for the sins of the world. 1 John 2, 2. Jesus died for your sins. If you don't absolutely know Jesus as Savior, you say today, God, I don't want to join Satan in hell forever. And you don't. Jesus, save me from my sin. And he will. That's the first thing. Make sure you have eternal life. Make sure you know that like Job, you're God's man or you're God's woman, you're God's child. For believers, the first thing is this. Guys, get rid of any sin you're aware of in your life. Right? Don't leave it up to your father to discipline you for a sin you, you've been entertaining, you've been holding on to. You, you've kind of been saying, it's a little sin, it's not a big deal, I'll take care of that later, I'll take care of that tomorrow. If you've got sin in your life and you know it, get rid of it. Do whatever it takes to get rid of it because your loving Father will go to extreme ends to free you from your sin otherwise. You can avoid all kinds of, of trials, testings, discipline from God your Father if you'll simply do what Job did, fear God and turn from evil. That's a great start. Assume you'll be tested, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that whole chapter is about the testings that have occurred in the Old Testament that were examples for you and I, so we wouldn't sin the way those folks did. You're going to be tested. It may or may not be directly by the enemy, but you will be tested. And guys, the time to get ready for a test is not in the test. The time to get ready for an emergency is not in an emergency. It's before. What should you and I be doing? Can I just say bluntly again and again and again and again, read your Bible? That's the sword of the Spirit. If you don't know the Bible, you're a sitting duck for the enemy. And if you go to Matthew 4 and you say, how did Jesus combat the temptations of the enemy? What did he do? He quoted Deuteronomy four times because he had it memorized. We should be storing up God's Word in our mind, in our heart. God's thoughts should be our thoughts so that when those tests and temptations come up, we do exactly what Jesus did. We tell ourselves what God's already said about this situation, and that's what we follow through on. So get ready for the testings and the trials because they will come. Absolutely. Uh, pray. Matthew 6, 13, when Jesus taught, gave that model prayer to his disciples, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Lead us not. God, would you keep us from facing temptations that you know we'll cave to? Will you head us off at the pass before Satan gets to us such that we're going to fall? Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us, Lord, from the evil and the sin we would otherwise 
capitulate to. We're praying ahead of the time. It's just like getting ready. We're praying before it occurs. James 4, 7 and 1 Peter 5, 9 on your study sheet, resist the devil. You've got to have spiritual armor to do that. And if you look in Ephesians 6, the spiritual armor is all tied up in the Word of God. You've got to resist the devil and you've got to humble yourself before God. That means, God, you're God. I'm not. Your will is important. Mine isn't. I want to honor you. I want to obey you. Humble ourselves before God. And guys, the ones that are most meaningful to me, this is the fifth and last. We're done here. Uh, draw near to God and specifically Christ for the only adequate means of comfort and help. It says this in Hebrews 2.18 of Jesus, because he himself has suffered when tempted. Isn't that an interesting way to talk about being tested and tempted? Suffering. Jesus suffered in temptations. It says that's why he's able to help those who are being, present tense, tempted. Isn't that good? In the midst of your temptation, cry out to Jesus. And I mean that sincerely. I've told you guys, I was going down a mountain road one time, my truck went off the edge of a mountain, and I thought I was going to die. And you know, I didn't have to think about a thing. I literally cried out. It wasn't in my head. It was my voice. <laughs> I cried out, Jesus, save me. <laughs> and he did. <laughs> here I am. <laughs> he must have done something. But that's the thought here. When you face that you're in the midst of the temptation, you feel like I'm ready to cave, I'm ready to fall. You cry out to Jesus. Save me. Save me from my temptation. Lord, I'm about to fall. Save me. And last, Hebrews 4, 16. Lots of us have memorized this verse, but we don't remember the context. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, the context is temptation. When should you and I be fleeing to the throne of grace? When we're tempted, when we're tested, when the adversaries at work in our life to draw, try to draw us away from God and the life he means us to have. Satan can test us. Sin will kill us. Submit to God, resist the devil, and live. Amen.